So this idea of the grass is greener on the other side syndrome came to me as I was reading through the chapter and I just realized we're going to be talking about marriage and we're going to be talking about being single and I, I realize oftentimes there's people that are married that wish they were single and there were people that are single that wish they were married and so the whole chapter it just goes back and forth um, from those two perspectives Paul very qualified to speak on both we believe being married and now when he's writing this he's single and so coming from a perspective that can definitely help us but as Christians we want to have God's view on things we want to see what God has to say about these types of things if you've never heard of the greener grass syndrome then I don't know maybe you've been hiding somewhere but nonetheless it refers to the way we tend to look at other people's lives and other things that we don't have in general through rose-colored glasses. It comes from the idea of looking at a neighbor's lawn and seeing it as, as better looking, healthier, and overall greener than your own, when in reality you're just ignoring anything negative about it and downplaying everything positive about your own. And so unfortunately we have a tendency to do that at times. We find ourselves in a state or we find ourselves in a set of circumstances and we want to hurry up and move on or hurry up and get out of it or hurry up and be done with it. And um, as Christians, we need to recognize that God has called us to faithfulness in whatever state we find ourselves in. We learn that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul said that it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. And so wherever we're at, whether married or unmarried, whether in a job or in transition to a job, whether with children or desiring children um, because you don't have them. Whatever state we find ourselves in, we need to be faithful where we're at. And so it's very important that we look to the scriptures and we look to these things that God has to say as it relates to these things. Paul is now entering into a new um, section in Corinthians. The first section, he was talking about Information that he had received from Chloe's home. I'll read you the verse. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. It says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And so he deals with that in the first six chapters in the book of Corinthians. And really what they were doing is they were divided where they should have been united, and they were united where they should have been divided. The division was because there was pride in their hearts and they were um, lifting up what group they associated with. Some were of Paul, some were of Apollo, some were of Cephas or Peter. And then there was that group that said, we identify with Christ and we don't need anybody. And it was pride. Paul tells us that they were puffed up. And then as he gets into the following chapters, he mentions that there's somebody who's doing something that's should have been judged, should have caused a division. The church should have said, no, we're not going to stand for this. There was sin in the church. And instead of being divided on that, they were united. Hey, we've accepted this guy. We haven't even judged him. Paul says, I'm not even with you and I've judged this individual. Kick him out of the church so that he can have just a repentance and come back to the Lord. And so that's what Paul dealt with in the first few chapters. We turn a corner now in chapter 7, where he says, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, 
And so now he's going to address the second half or second part of this epistle. He dealt with the things that were reported to him first. Now he's going to deal with the things that they wrote, questions that they had. And the first one that we're going to deal with is one of marriage and singleness. To put it in the context of first century A.D., we have to understand that Gnosticism um, was a belief system that had two components. And that was the predominant view of the religious in that day. This Gnosticism had crept into the church. And there was this spirit, physical body component dichotomy that was taking place. So there was one group of Gnosticism that taught... Gnostis comes from the Greek word kenosis or gonosko, to know... And they believed that they had secret knowledge and that the only way you can identify with God or come to know God was with this secret knowledge. And so part of this secret knowledge was this body-spirit dichotomy where they believed, one part of them believed that the body and everything material was evil and the spirit was good. And so because the body's evil, you could do whatever you want with your body, but the spirit is what connects to God. There was another group of Gnosticism. They were called the ascetics. And the ascetics, yeah, aesthetically. So those on the outward appearance, they believed that they had to refrain from anything in the physical because the physical and the spiritual were so connected that there was no way they can connect with God if they were doing anything with the body. Even sex within marriage was forbidden. And so they would abstain, again, given the outward appearance that they were more holy. And so remember now, it's Paul that's speaking into this culture um, to be able to just know, show the heart of God and the truth and the reality of what God has a desire for us. And so that's what we're looking at. Again, let's pick it up. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. He's speaking to singles there. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And so Paul is saying singleness is good. Being married is good. I notice in the church, we have a tendency to treat singlehood as some second class Christian citizen. And I think it's very unfortunate. That's not the heart of God. It's not the heart of God that everybody has to be married at any given time within the church. The Bible does say in Proverbs, let's see, I wrote it down. In Proverbs chapter 18, that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. But that doesn't mean to not uh, have a wife or to not be married. Uh, You don't have favor with the Lord. And so to be able to have a wife and to be married is definitely a blessing from God. But Paul is going to show us in this chapter equally a blessing to be in whatever state you are, whether that's married or single. And so I think it's, we have to be careful as Christians to um, not say things that the Bible doesn't say. So this idea of it is good for a man not to touch a woman in this state of singleness, he's obviously forbidding sexual sin and saying that if you're going to live in a single state, if you're going to be single in the season of being single, be careful. There's a lot of temptation. There's a lot of sin that's out there. And it's not God's desire that we would be living in sin and that we would, again, just if we look at this culture, think that it has nothing to do with our spirit. 
Um, we are body, soul, and spirit. And the things that we do in our body definitely affect our soul and it affects our spirit. And so you can't move away from the three. The three are intertwined and connected. Body, soul, spirit. Your body is everything physical. Your soul is the real you, the inside you, your emotions, your will, your strength, your heart, and all of those things, your mind. Um, And the spirit is that part that connects with God, the part that comes into the world dead. Until you're born again, your spirit is dead. And so we, we are, this is what my pastor used to do all the time. He'd say, we are body, soul, spirit. Body is dead. We become Christians. We're born again. We are now spirit, soul, and body. Your spirit or your spiritual person should be ruling and reigning and driving your life and the decisions you make. So that's the singleness. The verse two, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And so again, He's putting them on an equal playing field. Verse 3, let the husband render to his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so I think this is very important that we understand. Right here he's speaking specifically to married. Next week is going to be a little more on the singles. Um, I'll kind of intertwine it because there are scriptures both back and forth with each. But very important stuff to be able to think that you're more spiritual because you're not coming together in a sexual uh, union with your spouse is just, it's ridiculous, the Bible is teaching. Many in the church for many years believed that sex was given um, within a marriage for the purpose only of procreation and fulfillment and obedience to God's first commandment to be fruitful and multiply. And that's found in Genesis. And they thought sex had nothing to do with pleasure. In fact, they thought Christians should not experience pleasure on any level and nothing could be further from the truth. We read in our time of responsive reading in Genesis 2 that God saw that man was alone and he said, for the first time in scriptures, it is not a good thing. Everything was good, 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 very good. And then the first time God says that something is not good is when he sees Adam alone. And God's solution for Adam being alone was to bring him a helper comparable to him. In my premarital counseling I touch on this quite a bit. We go through Genesis and we go through all of these different scriptures that deal with these things and the importance of understanding uh, what these words mean. Oftentimes, uh, fiancés, women, will have a problem with, well, I'm only a helper? Hold up, that's paraclete. And it's the same name given to the Holy Spirit, the one that will come alongside. And definitely the answer to the question is why a helper and the answer or the question would be because man needs help man needs a lot of help and so god would bring a helper and there's a compatibility there comparable to him and we know that opposites attract marriage is probably one of the most difficult things that you will do experience on earth and the reason why is because you have a daily reminder of a mirror sitting in front of you revealing how selfish you are, how self-centered you are, how about you you are, and marriage just has this way of just revealing that very well. 
And so God begins to address within the scriptures here this idea of marriage and specifically now talking about coming together in sex. And it says, not in sex, like bees and flies in sex. S-E-X. It says, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. We can sit here and think, well, what would be fair as, a, as a, an amount in a given week or month uh, or year for frequency in this union of coming together, two becoming one flesh. And I think that's an unfair thing to do um, in an audience because I think different people have different um, temperaments, let's say. There's desires on different parts. I think what you and your husband or you and your wife agree upon in the Lord is basically what should be done. There's a scripture that I... I looked up, it was Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. The Bible says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And so the marriage bed is undefiled. And to be able to give a blanket statement that, well, this is what Ann Lander says, or this is what the statistics say, uh, frequency. True story, I was counseling with a couple. And a man thought that three to five times would be a decent number. And I thought, wow, three to five times? Okay, in a given month, I guess, you know, you're spreading it out maybe once a week. And then you got a little extra one. Maybe your birthday week came up or so. I don't know, right? And so I was thinking, okay, that's, that's pretty cool. And it, it wasn't three to five times a month. Um, and then I thought, whoa, three to five times a week. Wow, okay, wow, that's like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then maybe on like Saturday and Sunday you take a break. Okay, well, okay, maybe that. And he was like, no, it wasn't a week. This guy wanted to have sex with his wife three to five times a day. Upon continuing to counsel with them, what I discovered was this man was given over to pornography, and he had a distorted view of sexuality and what he could command and demand from his wife and he used this scripture to be able to say hey your body belongs to me and I have a right to three to five times a day that's inappropriate that is just off and that's not right and so again you have to take a look at each couple individually and the temperaments that are there and the desires that are there and what's driving those desires but ultimately we need to not deprive one another and God is giving these, us these ideas, these things for our safeguards, that we would be careful. The temptations and the things that exist out in the world are real. And God is saying right here in verse 5, he says it clearly, do not deprive one another. Notice, except with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and then come together again so Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so through fasting and prayer, what are we doing? We're denying the body and so the Bible is teaching, take it a step further. If you're going to deny your body, then deny your body of pleasure as well and give some time over to be able to seek the Lord in fasting and prayer. There was this thing going around within the church where sex was used by one spouse against another as punishment and withholding from that spouse to teach them a lesson and to show them something. I think the Bible would speak against that. If there's going to be a withholding, it's so that you can seek the Lord in fasting and prayer. And I like, I listened to a message that John Corson shared on this, and he said, go ahead and withhold as long as you can fast. So how long can you fast? 
If it's four hours, then I guess it's a four-hour withhold. If it's a day or two, then I guess it's that. And so, again, the Bible has wisdom on these things. It's very practical. We begin to look and see, wow, God knows what he's talking about in this area and in these things. And I think that we, being selfish by nature, we need to take into consideration our spouse and their needs and what they desire. Verse 6 goes on to say, But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment, For I wish that all men were even as myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. When Paul says here that each person has a gift, he's calling singleness a gift and he's calling marriage a gift. And so whatever state we find ourselves in, that's the gift that we should accept from God and understand that we should rejoice in that gift. Paul, we believed to be, was single at this time, but married at one time. The reason we believe that Paul was married at one time was because he was a rabbi. And every rabbi, by commandment, had to be married. Also, Paul was part of the Sanhedrin, we believe. I think it's in Acts 26 where that's mentioned. And to be a member of the Sanhedrin, the 70-member, basically, Supreme Court of Judaism that would judge all the laws... And on all the cases, you had to be once again married. It was said of Jewish men that if they were not married by the age of 20 20 years old, they were probably going to hell. So that's how elevated marriage was in this culture. And so, of course, Paul being a faithful Jew to everything that Judaism subscribed to, he says, as, as referring to the law, he was what? Blameless. And so all the rules, all the regulations Paul had kept, and so again, because of that, we believe that Paul was married. But at the time of of writing 1 Corinthians and his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, we believe that he was single, not married. So either widowed, his wife passed away, or his wife left him when he became a Christian. And so I think Paul is very well suited to speak to both of these states. He is single, currently writing the book of Corinthians, but at one time he had been married. And so he's speaking truth, not only from this ivory tower or theoretically, but he's speaking truth from experience. Goes on to say in verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so individuals do have the gift of singleness the gift of not an attraction to or a desire to be in a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex in marriage. And so that's a gift. It's a very um, unique gift, and I don't think it's in the majority. Jesus would be, in Matthew chapter 19, challenged by one of the Sadducees. Oh, I'm sorry, the Pharisees. And they would come to him, testing him and asking him a question Um, And the question is, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And so it was the hot topic of the day. And the test is to see what Jesus would say. Does he land on this side, on the conservative side, or on the liberal side? And so Jesus basically says that God's desire was for man to um, come together with a woman and that God would bring them together. And what God would bring together, let no man separate And so God's heart and God's desire was for nobody to ever be divorced. But, and then it goes on to say, and they're, again, trying to trap Jesus, but they ask him, then why did Moses give a certificate of divorce? 
Why did he give this provision? And Jesus says it was because hearts were hard. Because of the hardness of hearts, God gave this out or he gave this, um, uh, what is it, exception, if you will. And then um, Jesus says if somebody, um, let me read it to you. It's in Matthew 19, um, and I'll read starting at verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adulteries, adultery. And then the disciples asked and they said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And so they see this restriction. They see this extremely, wow, this is, man, extreme stuff. Then maybe it's just better not to marry. Then Jesus answers the question on this idea of eunuchs and being celibate. He goes on to say in verse 11, But he said to them, All cannot accept the saying, but only those to whom it has been given. So there's the gift. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And so he gives three categories of individuals who can experience celibacy, these eunuchs, these individuals that would not be attracted to or have sexual relations in marriage. He says there's people that were born this way. There are people who have been made this way from the outside, somebody. And then there are people who have this gift. The people who were made this way from the outside were individuals who maybe looked over a harem. So men who would look over either a king or a powerful man's harem and they would basically be castrated so that there would be no shenanigans taking place with the concubines or the multiple wives of these powerful men. But Jesus is saying that this is a gift given to some. If that gift has not been given and there is a desire on the part of an individual to be able to come together with a person in marriage, then wait on the Lord. But the whole point or purpose of this chapter is whatever state you find yourself in, be careful with the greener grass syndrome. Be careful to think that your state is less than somebody else's state. That somebody else's grass is greener as you look over the fence of their life and say they're in a better condition, downplaying your condition. And again, unfortunately within the church, I think many singles have been made to feel like second-class citizens, like they're not um, to the level or stature of those who are married within the church. That's not God's heart, and that's not God's perspective. Moving on as we look at this chapter, verse 10. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and a husband is not to divorce his wife. And so God's heart is not for divorce. In fact, in the book of Malachi, the Bible says God hates divorce. Why do you think God hates divorce? The reason God hates divorce is because of what led up to divorce. Think of the heartache. Think of the pain. Think of the confusion. Think of the chaos. Think of the kids. All of that stuff is just reaping, wreaking havoc. Another reason that God hates divorce is because a marriage beautifully depicts 
God and the nature of God. God at creation took his masculine attributes and he gave them to man. And he took his feminine attributes and he gave them to women. And so within a marriage where two were separated, two can now become one flesh, that one flesh of two people becoming one flesh is a beautiful picture of who God is. Strong, protector, warrior, one who provides, soft, tender, nurturer, caring. God is all of that. And so in a marriage, a marriage is able to depict the nature of God. And so for those reasons, again, God hates divorce. That's why the enemy is strongly opposed to marriage and what, merit, what a godly marriage is all about. And so Paul here is saying that we should not depart. A wife should not divorce her husband. A husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 12, but to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if your unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? And so in the first few verses, 1 through 11, uh, just intermingled, Paul is speaking to married Christians within, uh, or, or Christians who are married. So both the husband and the wife are Christian. Here he says, well, what if there's an unbelieving spouse? but that unbelieving spouse has a desire to stay within the marriage. Then Paul says, don't look at life on a temporal plane. If we look at life on a temporal plane, we're going to get in trouble. We're going to begin to do things from temporal perspective, and we're going to lose sight of what God may possibly want to do in our hearts and through us. And so he's saying that who knows? Maybe through your conduct, maybe through your behavior, maybe through your soft and quiet um, demeanor. You can win that unbelieving spouse to the Lord. God will use you to be able to do that. I think First Peter addresses this. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 1, through th- 1 and 2, the Bible says, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And so there's an opportunity to win a spouse over to the Lord if you're in a marriage where one is a believer and the other is not. There's a lot of neat little things that Paul is addressing here. He's saying that the husband that is an unbeliever or the wife who is an unbeliever is sanctified by the believing spouse. And what does that mean? Well, if you remember Job, there was a what? A hedge of protection around Job. God had placed parameters on how far Satan can mess with Job. And so evil doesn't come from God. We know evil comes from Satan and the demonic realm, right? But nonetheless, a Christian is safe in the sense that Satan cannot touch us without God's permission. Now, when Satan does attack us or come to us or come at us, it's because God knows that he can use that to build us up, to strengthen us, to cut away something in our life that doesn't belong there. And so in that sense, an unbelieving wife or an unbelieving husband is sanctified or protected by the believing spouse. 
And then he says something interesting, or your children would be unclean. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. And so the children in a believing home have an opportunity to be exposed to truth in a way that they wouldn't. And so there's another reason to be able to stick that out, if you will. Moving on now, he hits our last section in verse 17, and he says, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches, was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. And so what Paul's going to do here is he's going to use some practical examples of just things that people were doing in life to become more holy, or so they thought. Well, I'm not circumcised, and Jews had to be circumcised, so I'm going to get circumcised so that I can be closer to God and holy. And he's saying, no, if you were in a state of uncircumcision, when you came to the Lord, you don't have to get circumcised. There were individuals who were actually becoming uncircumcised who were circumcised. And they were having a reverse surgery done. And Paul is saying, whoa, 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 stop the presses. Why are you putting yourselves through all of this grief? What state were you in when God found you? Stay in that state. He gives us another example through slavery. He says in verse 20, um, let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it, but if you were, can be made free, rather use it. For he was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. Now, bringing it all together, how do we apply this? Whether divorced, married, unmarried, again, I think the church has done a disservice to many in the body of Christ to make people feel as if there's one that's holier or one that's less holy. And I think whatever state we find ourselves in and wherever we're at, God's grace can reach us all. And he has much truth to speak to us. So whatever state we find ourselves in, ultimately, we want to be faithful in that state. The grass is greener on the other side syndrome is spoken to of basically an individual who is not content. And if you think a change of station or a stage of a marital situation is going to make it better, then you're fooled. It's deception. You need to be content with God in whatever state you find yourself in. Two scriptures I want to share with you coming out of the first one is um, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. The Bible says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. To be content, to be satisfied wherever you're at, right where you're at, is great gain. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, the Bible says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, it's a learned thing, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
And so I think the heart of the message and this grass is greener on the other side syndrome is one of if I move my location, then I'm going to be better, happier, satisfied. If I change my station in life, I'm going to be happier. If I get a different job, all the time it's like, no, no, it's nothing outside of us. It's everything inside of us. It's having a relationship with God. It's walking and talking with God. It's having a communion with our Creator. And, and then whatever blessings or whatever benefits or whatever beautiful, wonderful things come from the outside in life, then we can rejoice in those things. But ultimately, it's really an issue of the heart. The heart of the issue is always the issue of the heart. One of my favorite verses is found in Psalm 119. Let me read it to you. And we'll close here. Psalm 119, uh, verse 165, it says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. We have a tendency to think that the law is bad, or God's word is, is, is going to take away or detract from us. God is saying, my law is my heart, and I want to communicate truths to you that are profound and deep, so that you can understand how to navigate through life, how to live in life. And if you love my word, then you're going to experience something that is supernatural, great peace. And so I think we need to be careful to be wise in our own eyes or be wise in our own estimation of things. We need to go to the word. We need to look to the Lord. We need to trust that God knows what he's talking about. It was Socrates who said, "If and, and he said this in... Um, to that verse found in Proverbs that says, he who finds a wife uh, finds a good thing. So Socrates said, if you have a good wife, you have a good thing. If you don't have a good wife, you become a philosopher. (laughs) See, and Socrates was a philosopher, so I think we can deduce from that that maybe he had a tough marriage. And if you think that having a tough marriage is the worst thing in the world, it's not. Because if it wasn't a tough marriage, it would be something else. Unfortunately, as I've said many times, we don't default to figuring out this thing called life. We need God desperately. We need Him to guide us. We need Him to go before us. We need Him to draw us. We need Him to woo us and all of these things. And without God's love letter, without His word... We, we just will get it wrong all the time. And so this idea that I had as I was reading this week of the greener grass syndrome of thinking that it's somewhere out there intangible, the enemy loves to do that in the lives of God's kids. Thinking that it's somewhere out there. No, it's somewhere right here. It's somewhere right here. It's, it's just cultivating a relationship with our God and being fulfilled and satisfied right here. And then I can bring my best self to a marriage and try and serve and love that individual. Or in a state of singleness, I can serve the Lord with reckless abandon because I'm not restricted in a marriage. But it's not out there. It's always right here. It's a condition of our heart. And so I want to encourage you to seek the Lord while he may be found, as it says in the book of Isaiah, that we would call upon the name of the Lord. And the longing of your heart is nowhere outside. It's cultivating a relationship with God, walking and talking with your creator.
Isn't that simple? But so difficult sometimes. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the scriptures. And Lord, just um, whether it be our flesh or whether it be the enemy planting seeds, Lord, it, it does get convoluted and confusing sometimes. But you've made it clear. And Lord, I know that within this room and anybody listening to a message like this, Lord, the enemy would love to condemn. The enemy would love to have individuals walk away dejected. But Lord, that's not your heart. That's not your desire. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that ultimately the message that you placed upon my heart for this section of Scripture was a simple one find ourselves in, that we would look to you in that state, that we would be faithful in that state, that we wouldn't look around thinking that something's better outside there. Lord, we have the best accessible to us, and that's a personal relationship with you. And so, Lord, I pray that no matter where we are, no matter where we find ourselves, that that would be the desire of our heart, that that would be the cry of our heart, that that would be the thing that causes us to wake up every morning, the thing that when we lay our head down on the pillow, we've lived out a day pleasing and satisfying to you because we've cultivated the most important, the most significant thing in this life, a personal, vibrant relationship with you. And so, Lord, help us to do that. Remind us uh, daily of the things we need to do as we thank you for just what you've blessed us with. In Jesus' name, amen.